0: So, um, you were muted for a second. Oh, okay. Did you start to say something?
1: I started to say something. Welcome to our adventure of landscapes of wonder. And um, hopefully, this is enjoyable reading for folks. I see now, um, I didn't put a little arrow. Is there there
0: someone who doesn't have the book? And if so, I'll share it. Okay. And doesn't have the book okay?
2: Yeah, I can't find my book. I'm gonna. Um, I don't want to be first, and I'll get up and search for it.
0: No, that's fine. That's fine.
1: So yeah. So we we generally read in alphabetical order. So Anne would would tend to be first, but we'll skip you over and catch you on the next round, right? Right. Okay. So and I believe we're on. Are we on page 58? Is that what people have? Yeah. Uh, Mid page. Matters of livelihood.
3: Apart from matters of livelihood. Yeah,
1: apart from matters of livelihood. That's what I thought. Okay. So, um, all right. Nancy.
0: Does that look good, Anne? She's gone to get the book. She's, She's going to look for the book.
3: Yeah, I don't think you need to share the screen, Kim.
1: Okay. Nancy, Nancy, do you have a book?
4: Yes, I
1: do. Oh, okay, great, great. Okay, so, so that's probably Barbara then, right? Yeah. Okay.
5: Are we ready? And
1: yes, and just follow alphabetical order. By now, the regulars know kind of who they're following, so it should be fairly easy.
5: Apart from matters of livelihood, we sometimes suffer the presence of rodents or insects. In our houses, and might think it necessary to exterminate them. A thoughtful Buddhists should take an effort; should make an effort to deal with the problem by non-lethal means, such as capturing alive, and releasing outside the invading creatures, or using harmless repellents, or preventing access to food, in hiding places, or otherwise discouraging the entry of pests into the house all this requires some trouble and work of course but that is the nature of moral discipline the buddha knew what we do not immediately have the strength to be knew that we do not immediately have the strength to be saints but he surely wished us to try as hard as we can to live up to honorable ideals if we are inclined to make compromises we should pause to consider the Buddha's teaching on harmlessness and kama.
6: Close observation of animals not only reinforces appreciation of the fragility of life, but draws us into deeper contemplation of our own predicament in the immense revolving cosmos. Here before us, legions of living creatures struggle and suffer and, and die. Unfortunate creatures guided only by their immediate impulses, appetites, and pains. Except for a privileged few, they will expire miserably, uncared for. They have little understanding and no inheritance, but the hard necessity of past action that has brought them to this birth and the instinctive deeds that will send them on to future births, that may be just as unfortunate. When they might rise to better states in an uncertain manner, depending on the fading out of bad comma and the potency of good.
7: Even if we unwisely discount the danger of being reborn as animals ourselves as a result of unwholesome, demeritorious deeds, we ought to notice that the animal kingdom presents a magnified, intensified picture of our own present condition. For like animals, we cannot long escape illness and pain. We must sometimes endure deprivation and harsh treatment. We do not comprehend the giant forces that seize us, frighten us sick, and fling us to and fro. There we go, morning after morning, faltering out into the dread world of frustration and jealousy, fed and groomed, but no better prepared than ever pacing our circular path like zoo lions, pathetically awaiting some improvement from without, some morsel tossed through the bars. Maybe our captivity is less apparent, our leash less taut, but still we live mastered by habit, not expecting to get out of it, making little faints here and there to sniff the wind but losing concentration, losing the scent of liberation, deciding instead to scratch and sleep and waking again in anxiety. Perhaps we strike with sarcasm instead of fangs, yet we can purr in our way, yet we can purr in our way, yet we would have in our troubled night some gentle word. We are baffled and long for peace.
8: Animals at their work or play might amuse us or bore us or disgust us, leave us indifferent. They should instruct us, as indeed should all phenomena of nature. That squirrel burying its nuts in the yard, we will find will it find them again in the snow under the snow? We packing away notes and bonds. Will we find them or find them sustaining when we grope for meaning and consolation in the reign of misfortune? How much of our industriousness is thoughtless instinct after all? In an era when sublime dhamma is still known and we are born with faculties sufficient to understand it, should we not try to escape the brutish bondage of ignorance
9: What page are we on? Sorry, I just came in. Uh, Sixty.
10: Sixty? Okay. In the crush of regular responsibilities, it would be worthwhile to devote some time to shaping a noble silence, a contemplation of freedom. The world talks at us endlessly, but could we not refrain from adding to the den? Throngs of birds make a twittering uproar in the bushes outside our windows. Maybe they are briefly content in their own state, but would we wish it on ourselves? Like flies senselessly butting a windowpane, we are hard to convince to reverse our course, to fly another way, to find an opening freedom. Or like befuddled cows, we make pass after pass around the corral in bovine perseverance. If we look about us at the scurrying, sighing, huddling, crying clans of beings, we might see in these flocks and herds and hapless multitudes some of our own sad tendencies come to worse worse condition.
3: No power, human or divine, can compel anyone to feel pity. Only a mind roused by wisdom can finally subdue the ancient pounding of self-will and self-assertion. After deliberating on the nature of cause and effect, moral precepts, and injunctions against taking life, after acting according to them in good will and faith in the Dhamma, the resolute Buddhist will find the buds of latent compassion opening. One careful for his own welfare must also be careful for the welfare of others, making no petty distinctions of higher or low, but appreciating the infinite reach of the Buddha's compassion, the radiance of understanding that overflows the vessel of the single mind and embraces all creatures.
11: Human beings live in a condition of mixed pleasures and pains where the contradictions of existence stand out starkly and have, potentially at least, enough mental ability to understand and transcend suffering. A perfected person, having come into knowledge of the relationships between living beings wandering through time, puts no limits on goodness, but directs boundless benevolence toward all who suffer, butterflies, birds, human beings, all. If we would elevate ourselves to such a station, to a liberation beyond all stations, we should take a care now not to injure our fellow wanderers, but to let them live in peace and for all, in all directions, to wish, may they be safe, may they escape suffering, may they find their way to nirvana."
0: Well, I I feel um, like he's, kind of, I feel real bad when I read this, like he's shaking his finger at us. You know, yeah. and, And then in the end, he's saying, you know, like having compassion. And we, it seems to be a little bit of a contradiction there. What do you mean? Well, we should be able to have compassion to ourselves, as in some um, part, like on the continuum toward this perfected being. But since I feel like I'm not at all there, so I feel uh, he's being very critical.
12: Oh, I yeah,
1: I don't read it that way, but it is, um, they, there is this sense of um, sequential development. So it's interesting that he talks about how uh, by deliberating on the nature of cause and effect, moral precepts and injunctions against tasting, life, taking life, after acting in accord to them in goodwill and faith in the Dhamma, the Buddhist will find the bud of latent compassion opening. So it follows actions; it doesn't precede them, which is kind of an unusual way to think about it. I mean, we usually think, "Well, you have to have compassion and then act out of that compassion." And what he's saying is, acting in accord with the precepts will actually cultivate or foster that latent compassion, which is a you know the opposite of the way we typically think about these things.
11: I was wondering. Yeah, I'm sorry, Peg. No, no, Go ahead. Um, I was wondering if he's writing this from some sort of direct uh, knowing of Kama and all the um, the progression of life, um, or if this is just a teaching of Buddhism that he just really, really, really believes in. You know,
0: I am kind of wondering that too. Not that he necessarily believes in, but that he's kind of a writer of someone else's belief. I you know I don't buy that he's that authentic of a practitioner. Oh, but a well, really interesting, a really good writer. Go on.
13: Well, interestingly I I mean he seems to um I mean the quality of his writing really seems to embody, you know, his expression and I, I feel uh i haven't really considered you know what, what you know where he is, but um, he certainly f- feels authentic and um also earlier uh, just a few pages back he he really was uh, saying that um that uh, there was no expectation that everybody would be perfect you know that um, that it's a it's a progression.
1: Yeah, and that certainly falls in line with that, that tradition. I don't get any insincerity in it. I don't get any inauthenticity in it. I think he's a very deep practitioner, and, but in this tradition, in this Theravadan tradition. So, um, so it has this quality of progressive self-improvement. You know, that's part of that. Um, and the um, uh, encouragement for that, uh, for that path. Right, so the encouragement so that people can spare themselves unnecessary suffering and others unnecessary suffering. So, so that's the um, underlying scaffolding in that, in that tradition's teaching, you know, in the Theravadan tradition teaching.
11: Yeah, it, it says here that um, talking about the animals and the insects, uh, they have little understanding and no inheritance but the hard necessity of past action that has brought them to this birth. That's um, right.
1: Yeah. So, it's so a real, there's there's this real sense of rebirth in um, yeah. one of those six realms, cosmological realms.
11: Yeah. I was just wondering <laughs> if that was uh, a direct understanding or a, you know, I don't know. That was, that was it, but
1: I, I understand the teaching and I-
11: Yeah, yeah.
1: So. And I don't know. I don't know that anybody could establish that, you know. But, um, but it's thought-provoking. So you think, um, it, it, I think, what I think these things do is cause us to really reflect on what it, what it is that, you know, what position we ourselves find ourselves in. <clears throat> so it can be challenging because it's different from, maybe different from your view. And so it's challenging to, to say, well, what would it mean to look at the world from that view? I like that
11: point of view, though, of uh, having compassion, really taking into consideration the experience of other living beings.
2: Yeah.
11: But that, the
2: fact that other living beings are all sort of on the road to being humans, and the humans are all on the road to being um, yeah. in nirvana, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I I agree with you, Peg, when you say It doesn't, it makes me question because I, it doesn't agree. It doesn't fall in line with my own feelings about the value of animals and butterflies and as their own things.
1: Well, I think that's what he's arguing for. You know, they have a life that they suffer, that they, you know, have their own being. Yeah. But then there's the the sense of you know beings in the animal realm are disadvantaged. Yeah, you know they're disadvantaged when it comes to the Dharma path. Um, it doesn't mean that they're um, prevented. It means that they're you know it's like starting behind the line, right? In the in that tradition, so so many many lifetimes and uh, um, of working through past karma
2: and that's in that tradition. Yeah, so it still seems really ethnocentric. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I would say
1: that, you know, that tradition definitely is. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, kindness and compassion for these beings, but they also believe that any animal could have been your mother in another life. And so it needs to be treated with the same respect and care that you would treat your own mother, if you have a good mother. (laughs) <laughs> then why would she be an animal in this life <laughs> no no it's in this rotation yeah, yeah. it's in people rotating through lives that eventually everybody's going to be everybody else's mother um, so you should have respect for all creatures because of that that's why Jizo carries the staff with the
2: rings Except he seems to be saying that because of sort of your, mis- your karmic misdeeds, you ended up as an animal or they ended up as animals. I mean, there's a
13: hierarchy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, there's definitely a cosmological hierarchy because it's definitely considered that um, the only really advantageous place to be in the you know, six realms is human because the others don't ever really have the aspiration for awakening or the skills or capacity for awakenings. The animals, you know, in this view, the animal realm is not a desirable realm because you don't have the ability to understand the Dharma and, you know, and follow the path and wake up. And uh, in the heavenly realm, which we, you would think would be desirable, all of your desires are satisfied. Similarly, you have no motivation. So you're not really, um, recognizing the suffering of other beings and we can see, i mean you can see all of these levels in current existence in people you know right on in, on the planet right now so you can see people who are clearly spending most of their time in the animal realm and people who are clearly spending most of their time in the heavenly realm and and what the effects of that are so it's, it's not that it's morally wrong it's not that it's less than it's undesirable It's undesirable to find yourself in that, uh, in that position, or the angry gods or, you know, um, it's just considered an undesirable realm to be in. Personally, I think those realms are moment to moment. I don't necessarily think that they're after death realms. I think they're realms we find ourselves in. All of them are accessible in any moment. In any moment, you can find yourself in the animal realm. In any moment, you can find yourself overtaken by anger. Any moment you can find yourself so comfortable, you kind of forget that other people are suffering um, or distract yourself from that. So to me, it's a moment to moment kind of layering of experience, uh, potential uh, ways of being, if that makes any sense.
3: Well, along along those lines, Peg, I, 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 I like what he wrote and I appreciate you pointing out the... Um, maybe unorthodox way of presenting you act with compassion and that cultivates compassion. But I think that's really well supported in other aspects of psychology, right? So if you feel low, you smile on your face and it, I mean, you just even fake a smile and it's known to release, you know, endorphins yeah. and other things that actually do create some level of happiness or
1: the things we embody yeah. become part of us.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So even when you can't muster up the thought to do it, you can just do it and the thought might follow.
1: Well, you can, yeah, you can watch people with a new baby. They're, they're sort of stunned, you know, like they've been hit with a big <laughs> rock or something. They don't know what they, what's happened to them. They don't immediately have the overwhelming love for this baby until they start to take care of the baby. They start to take care of the baby it evokes this love, you know, and the baby's responsiveness evokes that love. It's not immediate, um, it's, it's evoked through care.
14: What you you spoke of just a minute ago about you thinking that the uh, these different realms are moment by moment rather than one lifetime after another—is that something that that you learn through practice, Buddhist practice, or is that just an idea that?
1: (laughs) Um, I would say it's my lived experience. Yeah, my lived experience, and sometimes I can even see it. I can see how there's a like choice in the moment and I'm choosing anger or I, I, you know, I'm i choosing um comfort or I'm choosing whatever you know like um and I can I can see the switch and the possibility that it could be something
14: other. I, I would say that it is my experience as well but from moment to moment we shift from a realm to another that's my experience but I It's not something I've
1: learned. No, it's just, it's experiential. And so, you know, you find yourself, so, so here we are in a pandemic, but we're not quite in a hell realm. In some ways we're in a hell realm, but we're not quite in a hell realm. We can experience it as a hell realm, or we can say, actually, at the moment I'm, I'm comfortable, you know, and I'm fairly safe, you know, and um, I'm not actually inhabiting a hell realm. although there's hell realms all around me. Right. Right. So, um, so it's experiential, I think. And we begin to see that we can have some intentionality around how we meet this moment. Are we in one of the realms where we are incapacitated in a sense? Um, or are we in this realm where we're always unfolding the Dharma? Yeah.
8: That's,
1: yeah. And that's what you start to see. And that's why I, I think... Um, I I think that some of these things, I think uh, that there's a way of understanding them that's the folk way of understanding them. And there's a way of understanding them that's the dharmic way of understanding them. So the folk way is what, you know, what would make sense to a villager, right? Right, right. Um, And the dharmic way is this deeper boundlessness that realizes this is all happening at once. Um, And there isn't a, like, linear sequence and after you die then because you've been good you go and you're like that's a very hindu kind of belief right and that's the belief that the buddha was exploding that was what was so revolutionary and radical about what he was saying you know that karma isn't this sort of inevitable wheel you're turning and hoping for a slightly better life next time around if you happen to be in a bad life now so um so what happens is in the folk belief, people take the literal meaning and they miss the revolutionary sort of end uh teaching that comes that, that sort of implodes that. Right. And and that's why I think um, you get a lot of folk accounts of this cosmology that after you die, you know, you go to one of these realms, you inhabit one of these realms. So yeah, but I think we I think we have at least a taste of each of those realms in this very life and moment to moment. That's just been my experience.
14: Yeah, mine too. I, I just, yeah. I never heard it expressed that way, especially not in the Buddhist teachings that I've been exposed to, but it yeah. has been
1: Yeah, but I think that's more of a Zen way of looking at it, um, you know, so. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the story of the samurai um, approaching the Zen master with his sword up and saying, you know, teach me about heaven and hell. uh, Yeah. I mean, it's that, it's that fast, right? It's just like that. Okay. Earth tones.
9: just said it's my turn to read. I think so. No, I don't know. Yeah? Should I start? Should I just should I read?
0: Yeah.
9: Okay, earth tones. Um for us for us who are much attached to beautiful colors and shapes, winter makes a problem. We have doted on rich green maples, crimson azalea bushes and cheery blue skies. And when the turning year drives these dainties away, we are at a loss, wondering how to live expansively in a constricted frozen world. Shall we concentrate on an indoor hobby or fly to the tropics? The live colors that sustained us have died back to browns, to the whites of snow dust, to the infinite range of grays. And we look out the windows of our speeding cars, our bubbles of warmth, onto a blasted land, These dormant, muddy farms, these austere forests, these grim cities, these sullied skies, they repel us. They give us nothing. They furnish no entertainment for the senses. We dearly love beauty, but beauty is forever dying. From from the rose in the vase by the window to the fragrant acre of wildflowers. In time, all forms and colors shrink back to their roots, leaving the senses nothing to feast on and we squint out of our parkas at the bleak and the dreary with a te- stoicism. It is the teeth-chattering fa- stoicism. It is the famine of delight." <laughs> I don't agree with him about that. I always get depressed. Well, when i was in Austin, I'd get depressed when summer was coming because I knew it was going to be 100 degrees for-
1: Pay attention because he's about to make a turn. Oh, OK. <laughs> hey.
0: But color has subtleties we might forget amid the dramatic hues of spring, summer and fall. In the great retrenchment of November, the available colors grow dimmer and demand a finer eye. Until for long months, the visible world at these latitudes is mostly resolved to earth tones from the color of bricks to the color of slate, from bleak grass to brown drab woods, from tawny dirt to gray blown wind the spec rain the spectrum turns dull it takes an effort to appreciate the beauty (coughs) in these humble shades and to find satisfaction in impoverished elements indeed to mine aesthetic pleasure where none apparently is to be found is an achievement of sorts to note the spare loneliness of a dry weed suggests a fine sensibility. To admire the pattern of a pine tree against a snowbank bespeaks a readiness to rejoice, but on many occasions when the bullying wind pangs bangs into our faces and when sleet spatters spit miserably onto our heads, we are less eager to poet p-
12: It is the season of travel without and within. Our cars race along a gray track between brown immensities. Where has all the vivid color gone? Into the air, evaporated like ether? Scenes run by in miles of drab futility on the old, bare, unwelcoming earth. We see ourselves rushing between points, home and work engagements and appointments, hope and grief. And somehow the lack of color in the season now reminds us of the somberness of it all. We travel by car between cities or on foot just down to the mailbox and huff our little breaths into the void. While around us, the despoiled land spreads away in stone color and dirt color and the winds hiss and shrill.
15: Then we go traveling within and the journey is the same as if all parts of nature have strangely come to share the same weary tone or value. When the objective world seems empty of delight, we turn demoralized to the mind itself and find a corresponding hollowness. Swinging about and around, we might then begin to realize the extent of our dependence on factors beyond our control. Withhold the rain and we wither strip the maples and we grieve. We plod on toward the future, embittered by loss and uncertain of gain, while the dim colors of the landscapes within and without suggest our nearness to the stark elements of snow, dust, wood, and stone. We are used to little jubilations, to the smack of green on our eyes, and without them, we feel our mortality close and cold.
14: But let us look a little deeper. What is the real nature of our appetite for beauty? Is it simply a coarse hunger, hunger for the tawdry and the gar- garish? Surely not. If asked, we would probably, if asked, we would probably mumble something about harmony and balance and proportion. We do not really require that nature always flaunt splendid colors. Where then, sh- where then should we draw a line between the cheerful and the gloomy? Color is never entirely gone, but in the poorest times turns ascetic, turns to the earth. The gross appetite will be thwarted, but a finer vision picks out agreeable tones in ice, eroded earth, rain darkened boards, gravel and streams, and drifts of old leaves. We can, if need be, cut our rations of beauty down to ascetic levels. We can, by skill and diligence, pick up the scraps of old color, harvesting a restorative beauty in unlikely places. This sensibility lives in the human mind and may be strengthened by exercise.
3: I think we skipped
14: Nancy, so.
3: If we're going in alphabetical order, we skipped Nancy.
4: Oh, Nancy. <laughs>
1: uh, it's go, okay go ahead, Nancy. Now. <laughs> go now.
4: Yeah, go ahead, Nancy. But admiration of beauty by itself will not support us long. However, great our fortitude, winter in nature and in fortune will check us and unsettle us. It will kill the sampling in the yard and let the Arctic into our hearts, making us broad. On our defeats and values, how long can we live on meagre dreams hunched over against the wind and against the reverses of everyday life? Sooner or later our resolve weakens and we find ourselves grieving for lost love, lost beauty and victory never attained. However, dear the object, the longing for it is pain.
1: The cold seasons of the earth or the mind may be ameliorated by appreciating what beauty there is left, but repeated experience should teach us that we live still with old ignorant habits that upset tranquility. Might it be possible to break them? Because colors and enjoyments fade, we must learn to watch judiciously and cut back on our grasping. The world of the senses for all its charms is an impermanent world, disappointing and breathing us when we clutch at it in the belief that it will shelter us forever. As it changes, we must get by with lesser or different shelter. We must make do with earth tones. We must live on little. And when that little is gone, what then? If we examine ourselves carefully, we may come to see that the attachment to beautiful, pleasurable things is an impediment to happiness. And that in fact all possessiveness is a blight. Pleasant colors, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental concoctions have no endurance. For all their excitement and allure, they vanish and betray us. So how could we look to them for our preservation? Should we not instead try to free ourselves from dependence on changeable
2: objects? Is that equanimity changeable? What? Isn't equanimity, or peacefulness, or calmness, changeable as well? Yeah. Isn't everything? Yeah. I don't think he's saying they're not.
1: We're just trying to free ourselves from a dependence on changeable objects.
0: There aren't any objects that aren't changeable.
1: That's correct.
0: Aren't not changeable.
11: Right. So, it's just the grasping onto what we think we prefer over something else that's causing the pain. Yeah, exactly.
13: Shall we? Okay. Beauty changes. What arises slides out of sight. In the moment of seizing an object, we set ourselves up for suffering because we will sooner or later be separated from that object. Thirsting, reaching, gaining, and losing make a cycle of pain whose intensity varies with the underlying greed. Therefore, those who can restrain their senses, who can gracefully adapt to those earth tones, will fare much better than those who again and again hunger for delicious sensation. When there is craving or aversion, there will always be suffering, for the mind that pulls or pushes cannot come to balance. Here in this unreliable universe, we can neither make the beloved stay nor the undesired disappear. So we will be thwarted whenever we turn, as long as we turn with the cycle of liking and disliking.
2: To transcend the immense spectrum of unsatisfactoriness demands a major redirection of our sensibilities. We need to develop detachment To cultivate independence of mind as the only defense against universal transience. Mere stoicism fails because it does not touch the ignorance that that lies beneath all craving and thus cannot subdue the pain of decay and loss. To hold ourselves grimly aloof by force alone is little improvement over dashing forward or shrinking back. It still suggests bias, an ignorant desire to preserve ourselves in this or that inevitably temporary condition. Detachment is altogether a different quality, a healthy, knowing neutrality that prevents the arising of fever and anguish.
10: Such detachment
5: can be gradually won through the systematic practice of mindfulness, that impartial observation that divests objects of superficial fascinations and shows them in their elemental nature. To To be detached means to view things calmly and knowingly without becoming entangled in them we need not prefer dead roses to blooming ones, we must surely take note of the living and the dead without immediately and compulsively relating them to our own, to our self-interest. Seeing things simply as they are gradually neutralizes habitual passions because we come to learn through experience that all conditioned things are caught up in the process of arising and ceasing, and thus the conventional descriptions we apply to objects as beautiful, ugly, desirable, repulsive, and so on, are ephemeral and unreliable. If we understand this, how shall we presume to extract durable happiness from mere colors or sounds or taste or other fleeting aspects of changing sensation?
6: Observing the world and its changes mindfully with detachment leads to disenchantment and peace and eventually liberation from suffering, nirvana. In order to restrain the reflex of greed, it is important to try to to stop looking at things crudely as potential enjoyment and to see them more as means for understanding. As long as we unthinkingly surrender to objects the power to infatuate or distract us, or to force us into rash action, we live in peril because, they're, because of their inherent instability. But if we view with detachment both the repulsive and the lovely, if we see things exactly as they are and not as we would like them to be, then we can live safely and independently. Then the ravenous hunger for experience will not, tempor- will not be temporarily sated, but dissolved entirely. The eye receives forms, the ear receives sounds, but the idea of grasping them need not arise. The leaves of the forest will fall in their own time and the lakes will freeze over and the birds will come and go. And so should the wise observer be equally in accord with nature.
7: Have we left beauty behind? Are we dealing now with abstractions, with bloodless ideals? life without craving does not mean a parched intellectualism or immobility to be free of the tyranny of the senses including the mind sense is to walk with mindfulness in the present moment to think act and feel without distortion to be unruffled and capable moreover we do not destroy or despise beauty Only the feverish attachment to beauty is a hazard. That is what we must forsake. When autumn burns itself up and gives way to ashen winter, we will not be dismayed if we have not bound ourselves to the charming show. When a pleasure is spent, we may let it pass without grief. Forms, fragrances, colors, and sounds come and go, come and go, that is their nature, while the serenity built within stays undisturbed. Beauty is a poison only if we swallow it. When we use it as the ground for reflection, it may prove
8: gracious and inspiring. If we can turn from reds and greens to earth tones, and find beauty there, if we can further train ourselves to appreciate the shades and patterns in tree bark or the subtly overlapping clouds, what might this tell us about the nature of beauty? Do we simply compose it in our own minds? Why this unseemly lust for the indefinable? Mindfulness leads us away from thoughtless hunger for stimulation to keener and keener knowledge a fine disinterest in the attractions of objects until they no longer catch us, catch at us like
10: brambles or hang on us like burrs. Now over there, glimpsed by chance, a few stalks of pale yellow grass quake in the wind above the snow crust. In the poverty of winter, we bend toward them and meet a surprising beauty in their simple form. Then we are perhaps moved to see them as emblems of impermanence and loss, death, and renewal. Then, in the deepening silence, as the words die away, we may pass over the symbol to the pure, unadorned fact, sparse grasses in the frozen field. Here, cognition ends, and only contemplation can carry on. Grass is only grass. Let it tremble and blow, as it will. And stone is stone, and earth is earth unhated and undesired beneath the great gray wonder of the winter sky.
3: At these latitudes, the season of snow is long, but the season of spiritual cold is longer still for us if we have not learned to let alone what we cannot control and kindle instead a warmth in the heart. Even after April has opened its colors, we might feel a residual chill, knowing that the beauties we admire cannot last that we ourselves cannot. So we live uneasily in the expectation of loss that the next winter will confirm. With detachment on the other hand, with insight and equanimity, we might walk out on the temperate plains of non-delusion and watch the passage of things with serenity. Nothing really belongs to us in this tempest of sensation, in this figure of trembling matter. Owning nothing, laying claim to nothing, how could we be bereft?
11: Before I read, I just wanted to say that I I was happy to hear him talk about appreciation. Um, In my own experience, the arising and seizing of things can be quite beautiful in and of themselves. Um, You know... um, you know winter to spring to summer to fall i i find it all really interesting um and and beautiful in its own way so i appreciate that this sense of detachment isn't necessarily kind of like a coldness it's um it's not rejection right it's it's a more uh, kind of uh enfolding everything as it is and just an appreciation of this life flow or whatever it is. I don't know, I mean, that's, that's something that I felt myself. So uh, for a minute there, I was getting a little, <laughs> I don't know, thinking that maybe he was rejecting um, appreciation, yeah. you know. I don't think so, yeah. I
1: don't get that.
0: Yeah. I love this chapter, I think it's terrific. And we, uh, Ellen and I were talking about equanimity and I think this is all about equanimity. Yeah. But, uh, Also the last line of our Terragatha verse this week was something like, and now I am cool and free. Yeah. And I think it describes that so perfectly. Yeah,
9: yeah. 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 Okay.
11: Our cars whine over the roads. Our shoes skip over the hard ground. Our minds yearn after dreams, but still the sky crawls and the horizon keeps its distance. We travel swiftest when we cease to hurry, when we muse on the leafless maples while they shine with ice, and let the summer come back when it will. When we face barrenness and wreckage, when the momentary world presents itself in earth tones, in colors of things antique and elemental, we must bravely make of such stuff a life. This is the now, endlessly renewed, arising and departing. Already it seems a scent of gathering spring puffs in from southern latitudes and clouds turf and sea freshen and move on. So the year goes by and so a fair stillness comes even as the wind blows and the slow rain drips from the eaves of our house. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Very. Um... It's just very interesting to me how he captures a mood.
2: It's a very beautifully
7: written paragraph. Yeah. Really gorgeous. Yeah.
15: Yeah, he says the horizon, still the horizon keeps its distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> pretty neat. I do I do find it interesting. He wrote this, it looks like, like it was copyrighted in 1998. Yeah. Before. Pretty, it feels things.
1: pretty uh, current, doesn't it?
15: It does, it does seem current. It also, I also kind of think it seems, I I wonder what he would say about now. Things seem maybe faster than they were in 98. I'm not really, I don't remember 98 all that much, but it seems like things went and got themselves in a real big hurry and sitting and staring at tree bark. Seems like it might be a little Antiquated, almost. Never. A little I slow. I agree. <laughs> Never. I hope not. Join I'm us not. on,
1: yeah, yeah. Join us on our morning walk, and you'll see we're still hanging on yeah. to the. TV. <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> uh, he does. The copyright is also twenty
1: thirteen. Yeah. So I different- think he's published these essays at different times. Yeah, you can, okay. you can feel that. You know, they're yeah. see,
5: they're and you know something else that strikes me, uh, you know, just from a literary point of view and, you know, an uh, academic point of view is his audience seems to be changing at moments uh, for different essays. So uh-huh. last week when we were, we had those essays on Mar- romantic love, you know, Uh he didn't know a thing about it, by the way, you know, I wondered who he was talking to, you know, know, um, and it's like he was talking maybe to somebody new to the path, or young people, or something, so you, you can see he has different purposes and audiences, I think, with each essay, but where he just blows it out of the the roof is with these essays on nature yeah He, he 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 does rival thoreau in my humble opinion
1: oh yeah i think so
5: and then but he infuses it with you know of course a buddhist uh ethos so it's just spot on
2: for us very poetic for this
5: for this audience right right
2: i wanted to say something about this um the next to the last paragraph about owning nothing, laying claim to nothing. How could we be bereft? And it really brings to mind the Koan about the Zen master whose son or someone dear to him dies and he's weeping and wailing. And the students come out and say, why are you weeping and wailing? Everything is an illusion. And he says, yes, but it's very painful.
1: Yeah, death is the most painful illusion, you yeah. know.
2: But yeah. it seems like he's not really joining into that. I mean, he seems like he, he wrote the paragraphs about appreciating beauty and not being cold, but he somehow he seems to miss the point of that story.
1: Oh, I don't think so. Nothing really belongs to us. Um, he says, owning nothing, laying claim to nothing. How could we be bereft? We're
2: bereft because we're attached. But, right. But we are attached, even though we yeah. know. That's right. That's right. There's no question about that.
1: So, and this, I think, it is another sort of... Um, difference between the Theravadan tradition and the Mahayana tradition where the Theravadan tradition really believes it's quite possible to be entirely unattached.
8: Hmm.
1: In the Mahayana tradition, the Bodhisattvas keep returning, right, to the world of attachments, not because they're so spiritually backward, but because this is where the suffering is.
11: And also, you can be bereft but it's being attached to being bereft that's the issue not just allowing uh a sense of grief you know to flow through you um you know that's what i get from our practice is that everything is just flowing um uh, within and without we are all we're that you know yeah
14: yeah yeah, I didn't see in that sentence that you referred to, and I didn't see where he's saying that, that if we follow this path, that we won't feel the loss and the pain. I didn't see that he's saying that, that we wouldn't feel it. I'm just, it's, it's like what Gail said. He says it's the attachment to it. E- even the pain and loss, when we attach to it, then that's when we fall off the path is the way I saw that. And you're right, we are. <laughs> we do attach yeah. but, pain as well as pleasure.
1: Yeah, the things internally as well as externally are moving through us. That's like uh,
14: uh, weather.
6: Right?
14: Yeah, okay. That. that Previous page, he said it very well. He said, moreover, we do not destroy or despise beauty. The same could be said for pain or loss. We do not despise beauty. Only the feverish attachment to beauty is a hazard. That is what we must forsake.
1: And I do think that's different than appreciation. Yes which doesn't have the quality of grasping right it's subtle
2: it's a subtle thing to notice what would you what would you say about non-duality in the in this instance that the the universal and the relative that would you say that beauty or the clinging represents the relative and the detachment represents the universal and and they interfuse one another.
1: I don't, I wouldn't put it that way. I wouldn't, that's not the way I would. I think clear seeing is seeing both in one. So there's no um, separation relative and absolute are not separate things so i wouldn't i wouldn't characterize it that way yeah our absorption in um beauty is uh our attachment it's not necessarily limited to the world of the relative it's not necessarily a relative quality
0: So in the phrase, um, it's a terrible illusion, you wouldn't say the terrible was the relative and illusion was the absolute? No.
1: No, I, and, and I would say that that's a sort of a semantic kind of um, construct. And that's what you need to watch out for is the semantic constructs, the ways that we try and put a logical frame on something that doesn't have a logical frame. We try to impose that a scaffolding and say, well, this is relative and this is absolute, or this is relative with absolute, or you know? Um, and this is the, um, uh, probably a classic example of a quadrilemma.
8: Mm-hmm. You know, to
1: say something is relative but not absolute or absolute, not relative, or both relative and absolute, or neither relative nor absolute, that's the quadrilemma.
0: I guess we do that in order to uh, understand it, even though what you're saying is it's not accurate understanding.
1: Well, we're trying to understand it with our conceptual mind, which yeah. it doesn't, doesn't, um, isn't adequate to, the, to that, any more than you know trying to give uh, reasons why you married your wife. You know, like, yes, you can supply some reasons and they'll seem plausible to you and probably to the person hearing them, but they're not what really happened. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You say it for someone else's benefit. so
1: Or
8: for your own benefit. Or for your own, yeah.
0: Boom, but it
14: probably is
1: <laughs> you're trying to rationalize something that isn't is isn't a rational process really
0: i got a new car because the old one was going to break and you speak of all these stories like
1: right that. right it's you know and so you know in, in japan they believe that uh, reasoning is all ex post facto that we we decide on our hunches our intuition our emotion states or whatever and then we um, find reasons why
0: and that coincides with that idea that we make decisions four tenths of a second before we actually do. Right. That can, can, whatever, however long yeah. it is. Yeah. I totally
2: agree with that. I totally what? agree with that. I totally you agree, agree with, with the Japanese thing about yeah. when we decide something emotionally and then we come up with our logic right. to explain it i remember ha- saying having that conversation with a logic professor in college and he was appalled appalled yeah
1: because they've staked their whole career on this you know and um, and it's all that they it's the world they inhabit and all that they know but it's a very limited world yeah anyway what can we find out about age and wisdom yeah.
12: where were we
5: what person?
12: Page 67. Page 67, the start of the I mean, chapter. What person? What mm-hmm. person last read?
1: Who read the last uh, paragraph on 66?
11: I think I did. Ah, okay. Okay.
9: Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know, is it me, Jen? I don't, I don't know who I'm after.
1: Looks like it. Yeah, it's you, Janie.
9: Um, Age and Wisdom. The length of our particular human life is unknown to us, but limited, subject to the law of impermanence that governs governs all phenomena. Certainly none of us will, will forever possess health and strength to do as we wish. And yet, to many young people, and perhaps even to some of the middle aged, the possibility of actually getting old seems so distant as to be practically inconceivable. People to the to the innocent eye of youth occupy fixed compartments of age and situation. There are small children, the sick, the elderly, and then, quite distinct from all of them, there is. is that Ellis? I- huh?
13: Oh, I'm oh, sorry. My mic was off.
9: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then, quite distinct from all of them, there is I. Timelessly youthful, energetic, sparkling with ideas and enthusiasms. What could be more natural? Childhood remains in memory, of course, but only as jerky scenes of a movie that has sped on to this climax of young adulthood, where one can amuse oneself indefinitely and achieve wonderful things. If granddad or grandma is moving slow, that is no surprise. They've always been old, haven't they? (laughs) some people are and some aren't after all the polite youth will be glad to give them his arm when they slowly climb the front steps while his mind dances off with his own weightless dreams
0: (laughs) but the currents of change still flow the years break up and pass and that once young person stands before a mirror and moodily moodily draws the tip of a finger over a crease of skin. How strange! Some little coarsening the hearer, uncalled for, subtly changed our familiar countenance. That childish roundness of our features is gone. The roughness of living stands out. Different thoughts swirl in the rapids of the mind, and we realize how swiftly we have been carried on through scenes and situations. School is a fading memory, and without knowing quite why, we have become a little graver, more reflective. Single or married, now with children growing or with children grown, yet with our own maturity still somehow not quite accomplished. And doubt rises in us, even as we tell ourselves we ought to be secure and capable now. The oldest generations that we remember have blown away and we find ourselves promoted to a new uncertainty. Now when a laughing group of high school or college students passes us on the sidewalk, their faces and chiming voices seem how poignant it is, so young.
12: Lost in the spray and froth of time, we start to wonder about the youth that we thought we had. Has it in fact escaped from us? Or was it always just a name and an an illusion? It seems we are incredibly changing, going the way of our ancestors, getting older by tiny but inexorable degrees. And although we may call ourselves or others young, mature, middle-aged, elderly, we begin to realize that no category, no approximation holds for long in this unstable progression this endless sloughing off. If we stare at the hour hand of a clock, we can observe no motion at all and might call out the hour as one or two or whatever, but our gaze drips away and in a while we look up to find that the hand has sneaked into a new position and we must pronounce a new name for the time. Change goes on, has always been going on and even in the dream of childhood, even now, So if we are are alert, we will at length admit and ponder the fact that the concluding phase of this human life, by whatever name we call it, must be confronted soon.
15: What shall we make of the irreparable loss of youth, and the flagging of our strength, and even perhaps our hopes for success, triumph, vindication? In the merciless bathroom mirror, the middle-aged man lightly handsome and bright, frowns at his thinning hair, his haggard look. After a party, the fading beauty grows melancholy over old photographs. The athlete who yesterday was keeping up with the youngster's winces and mutters over a sore knee that somehow will not heal as quickly as it once did. Time pulls at all of us gently or sharply until we notice, embrace ourselves As we may, we still give ground. We speculate about the shapeless years ahead and doubt invades our hearts. Maybe we will not, after all, receive the recognition and thanks and praise we desire. Maybe we will not get rich. Maybe our dearest plans for security, long dreamed over, will not work out as we wish. In our aging parents, we perceive our own destiny and, especially if we have been used to health and activity, the prospect of illness, frailty, and decline frightens us.
4: How can we adjust to the unstoppable slide into old age? The first thing to do is to pay attention to principles, to learn to see freshly and review our view of reality, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. The elemental fire that burns the living beings must be understood and focused understood profoundly in order to be escaped. Along with both that sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the Buddha identifies old age Ha-hara, as an aspect of Dukkha. On of us wish to live to be, but living and being bring with them on manner of affliction. But ushers in aging and death. One could be trouble enough, but according to Buddhism, as long as craving has not been eliminated, the, sur- the cycle of condition existence keeps on turning, forcing us in one life after another to keep laying out the rise and fall of brutality, to keep marking the, s- the circular hours, to keep sleep- sleeping from into age, the purpose of the Buddha's teaching is to show us how to live worldly amid these conditions, and moreover, how eventually to cast to cast off accustomed chains and realize the sublime eman, emancipation of duvana uh, nibana. You're
1: muted, Paul.
12: (laughs) I'm muted.
14: Sorry, thank you. (laughs) Suppose we have some faith in the Buddhist path. Still, we must suffer the same physical misfortune as other people. What about that? Nibbana is hard to attain. We do not doubt it. So how are we to get along in this present life with this human body that perhaps already shows signs of deterioration? Here it helps to remember that the Buddha and his enlightened disciples themselves were not immune to the law of impermanence that slowly wrecks the body and clouds the senses, but they they rejoiced in a countervailing blessing, wisdom, Hana. This wisdom is not a mere pile of experience or a chance spark of intuition, but rather an uncovered lamp, a timeless light revealed by the removal of obstructions from the mind. By this light perfected ones, by this light perfected ones see the universe as it is and walk in confidence through perils letting go utterly of all that causes distress or worry. Certainly they continue to feel such physical pain as the human body is liable to, but as they no longer compulsively grasp at and identify with the body, its shortcomings cannot disturb their radiant peace.
1: Wisdom, even in a lesser modest degree, is a shield against the blows of circumstance and a sustaining force amid loss and disappointment. The Buddhist way is not to ignore troubles, but to probe straight into them with a contemplative mind. In fact, to use those very troubles as catalysts and teachers. Are we faint-hearted? Do we lack initiative? Do we still halfway doubt the urgency of our situation or the possibility of progress? Then we should recall that the world teems with signs portents, and legible truths. If the prospect of old age is starting to concern us, as well it should, we need not look for it, look far for divine messengers, Devaduta, to rouse us. Indeed, we can hardly plead ignorance of their presence. But, my good man, did you not see among people a woman or a man aged 80, 90, or 100 years, frail, Bent like a roof gable, crooked, leaning on a stick, shakily going along, ailing his youth and vigor gone, with broken teeth, with gray and scanty hair, or none, wrinkled with blotched limbs? My good man, did it never occur to you, who are intelligent and old enough? I too am subject to old age and cannot escape it. Let me now do noble deeds by body, speech, and mind.
13: Likewise, in a sick person, we ought to recognize the divine messenger who prophesies illness, And and in the dead, the divine messenger solemnly reminding us of mortality and the few precious years we may spend well or badly. A boost to our resolve can be found just in the recognition of these divine messengers all around us. Then we should take stock of our own situation and act rightly in deed, word and thought. The Buddha teaches that all phenomena are caused and conditioned. They do not appear accidentally, but only when the necessary conditions come about. Wisdom grows up nourished by morality and concentration. Thus, if we need mature wisdom to defend us, and we do, we must devote ourselves to morality and concentration. In other words, we must undertake the grand path of the of Dhamma as shown by the Buddha.
2: When we were children, we were given puzzle drawings, which invited us to find the little animals hidden in the grass or trees. They were there. They were certainly there all along, cunningly hidden, but we had to look closely to make up the significant figures against the deceptive background. In a similar way, powerful symbols and fruitful truths constantly await our scrutiny in the tangle of daily life, but it requires a mind disciplined through morality and concentration to pick them out and comprehend them rightly. A divine messenger of old age, sickness, or death, once seen, once recognized, will step forth again and again in one guise or another amazing us that we never noticed this visible Dhamma before. Seeing and pondering, we must exercise our newborn and still weak understanding by behaving morally and nobly with mindfulness and energy so that stronger understanding will be the happy result. Then it may be that when we come to deal with the wearing out of our bodies, our minds will be alert and ready.
5: Just as in our childish ignorance, we attribute permanence to the people and scenes about us, assuming they will always stay the same. So we have long been accustomed to think that wisdom, strength, ignorance, or other virtues or failings are permanent and fortuitous characteristics of people. For example, we assume that there are somewhere the wise, and that there are ordinary people like ourselves. And then there are ordinary people like ourselves. Thus we are and always will be. So why should we presume to seek insight? But this is a dreary mistake, resulting from inattention to causation and change. Wisdom does not hop out of some cosmic lottery into one person's head, but not another. Rather, it gener- germinates, grows root and stock, and bears fruit according to the efforts of the individual dedicated to his own true well-being. We cannot excuse ourselves from the religious challenge on the grounds that we are not wise, that we just do not have what it takes for enlightenment. Nobody has what it takes before actually traveling the path. Even the Buddha himself, we must remember, lived innumerable lives before he reached perfection. And even in his last life, he was certainly not just born into enlightenment, but had to earn it. Can we, in our turn, respectfully bemoan our lack of wisdom while refusing to cultivate it? The way which the Buddha found and made known Lies open for us and we can, if we will, take advantage of the opportunity just as others have done.
6: This is not to say that the path will be short or easy, only that it is open to whoever will set out on it. What do we need? What do we need to start moving? Some energy, some confidence, some inspiration, born from considering the example of the Buddha who understood and overcame moral afflictions. Once in the Buddha's old age, his personal attendant, Venerable Ananda, was massaging his body and spoke up in this way. It is wonderful, Lord. It is marvelous. Now the color of the Blessed One's skin is no more clear and bright. All his limbs are flaccid and wrinkled. His body is bent forward, and there seems to be a change in the sense faculties of his eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and bodily sensation. The Nikaya.
7: Why should Venerable Ananda find these facts wonderful or marvelous? We might reasonably guess that he saw them in the light of the Buddha's lifelong teaching about impermanence. Even the Buddha, so vigorous, vital, endowed with psychic powers, had to succumb to the decay of the body. And Venerable Ananda was astute enough to catch the significance of the fact. If the noblest of men cannot avoid the unpleasantness of old age, then how can we? But more wonder should come from the realization that the Buddha, while deploring old age as another form of dukkha, bore his own infirmities with equanimity. The mind, we must understand, need not be a slave of the body. Radiant with wisdom and established in mindfulness, the Buddha was not upset by such a predictable, natural happening as the breaking down of his body. He had long since finished with all attachment. His mind was utterly pure, with no trace of anxiety remaining. A follower of the Buddha reflecting on this should see that if his own mind develops properly there will be less and less
8: to fear about his body as there is a limit to the length of our lives what may we really hope to accomplish or what should we concern ourselves with right now most of us do not live so much in the present as out of the present distractedly involved in the here and now but forever yearning, flinging imagination toward the ever-receding future. There is nothing wrong with ordinary, reasonable ambitions for our own and our family's prosperity and security, whether to start a business or to build a house or to learn some new skill. But But it is a mistake to think that these alone, even if they work out as hoped, will ensure contentment, to live correctly, mindfully in the present moment is to do what needs to be done now without pointless fretting about circumstances which may or may not may or may not someday come about all we know for sure about our future is that our hand will be less steady and our eye less keen we will someday sit as spectators while others in their youth and vigor will be raising billows of dust and winning praise at that time, will we be smiling tranquilly or grieving at loss?
10: Too often we use the idea of old age as a convenient storage bin for good intentions. We are not willing to act upon it <laughs> present, such as the intention to devote ourselves more seriously to meditation or religious study. Distractions, wants, and duties so force themselves upon the mind that only very determined people can consistently apply themselves to, a higher, to higher matters and remember to keep the Dhamma at the center of all their activities. Caught up in the daily fanfare, in dickering and dealing, fretting and enduring, we push off to the future, to the time when we will have le- have least energy, those challenges that will require the most of us. We are eager enough in advancing ourselves in, minor matters, and we strive honorably, it may be to protect and support our families. We manage to extricate ourselves from many trying crises, though not from the religious one, not from the one of old age. Through the cascading years, harassed by doubts and guiltily aware of our incompleteness, we tell ourselves we are heading toward free time in the future in retirement or old age, which we will spend in reversal of present habit for religious purposes. Such temporizing should make us blush, where it amounts to thinking, now I am too busy for the Dhamma, but when I am old and tired and can't do anything else, then I will see about getting enlightened. Rather than waiting for an unguaranteed future, we should practice now using whatever time we have available trying, even in our busy hours, to maintain mindfulness.
3: In careless people with no knowledge of the Dhamma, the sight of a very old man or woman moving along slowly with the aid of a cane or a walker might evoke only indifference or a fear of the end of enjoyments or a perverse resolve to scratch harder for wealth, position, and pleasure while time lasts an apt way to embitter old age when it comes. This is to ignore the divine messenger and obey the profane one. So runs the world on the rails of a desperate philosophy. But we do not have to take that train if we know a better road. We can squander our time as easily in busyness and idleness and no frenzies of globe-circling or empire-gathering will comfort or emancipate the baffled heart.
11: Life offers worthwhile employments and healthy joys, but these are not all of one kind or confined to one impermanent epoch. Might not old age become, with the right preparation, a time of ripening, of deep contemplation, of rich insight? Youth has its joys and powers but these should not crowd out aspirations toward timeless wisdom. The young have their anguish too and need direction and peace. Why should they or any of us postpone indefinitely the blessings of the Dhamma when the materials for good work surround us? Birth, maturity and death, rising, remaining, vanishing, go on succeeding one another endlessly multitudinously on all scales, from the explosion of stars to the twinges in our bodies, to the opening and closing of wildflowers, so that we never lack themes for meditation.
9: Uh, The mere accumulation of... The mere accumulation of years, no matter how thick with adventures, will do nothing to build up wisdom or disper- disperse ignorance. For what is experienced by itself but a disordered mass of pains and pleasures, a confusion of happenings. But when we live consciously and intently intently bringing morality and concentration to bear on our experience, when we study the patterns and the tapestry of events, then we set up prime conditions for the quickening of wisdom. If death should abruptly cut off this little drama, that is beyond our power to prevent. If we should survive to an uncommon age, that is the body's business. Our business is to live now through whatever circumstances our kama provides as clear-headed seekers of the good and the worthy.
0: Once the Buddha asks King of Pasun Adi of Kosala, what he would do if he were told that a mountain as high as the sky was moving toward him from the east, inexorably crushing and destroying everything in its way, (coughs) and that the three other mountains were moving toward him from the west to the north and the south. The king responded, in such situations, sir, a great danger of terrible destruction to human life having arisen and a human birth being so difficult to obtain what else could be done but to practice dhamma to live calmly to do good and to make merit i tell you O king i put it to you old age and death will come upon you since old age and death are coming what is it you can do Since old age and death are coming upon me, what else can be done but to practice Dhamma, to live calmly and to do good (coughs) and to make merit? Sumyutta, Nikaya 3, 3 3.5. Can I go on?
1: Um, We're at the end of our time, I think. Okay, So um, we end right here. Um, and I think this is so marvelous, because here we are, we have this uh, mountain of COVID coming at us from every side, right? What else can we do, but practice the Dharma? All right, so we'll start up next week, right there at the beginning there, the Buddha approved of this wise answer. Okay, have a wonderful week.
4: Thank you.
1: I hope you're enjoying this. I think I, he's got a very distinctive voice, you know, that's unusual in uh, Buddhist writing. So it's interesting.
0: I'm glad Barbara pointed out that that they were written at different times to different audiences.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I so know that.
0: And so we have to switch who we are kind of as we read it.
1: Well, we just have to understand that, I think, you yeah. know. And I think the uh, the question I always have I don't you know like I don't point things like that out because the question I always have when I'm reading anything is who does the person seem to be writing this for, um, and uh, and that's been really helpful for me. Like if I'm not the target audience, I don't get irate.
12: <laughs>
15: <laughs> no, I can't see you getting irate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised.
12: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, take care, everybody. So good to All see right. you. It's really nice to have others here.: a-
9: Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thank you.
4: Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> good night. Good night.
12: Bye, Good night.